Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of DevOps Unbound. DevOps Unbound is a bi-weekly video series where we look at relevant topics in DevOps and they really, you know, DevOps is sort of an umbrella term and we look at everything under the umbrella. Uh, we have a really interesting topic today that I think is related to DevOps and we're going to explore it. But before we do, I want to introduce you to our panel today. Um, and be, actually, before I introduce you to our panel, I wanted to just give a huge shout out to our friends at Tricentis, who sponsor and have sponsored DevOps Unbound here for a year and a half. And without them, we, we couldn't make this show happen. So many thanks at Tricentis. Uh, Tricentis, you should check them out for more information. We actually don't even have anyone from Tricentis on today's panel, unfortunately. So you're going to have to go to their website to find out more about them. But many thanks to them. Um, in addition to these bi-weekly DevOps Unbound uh, episodes, I should mention we also do a monthly, every four to six weeks, live roundtable edition of DevOps Unbound where we ask our studio audience to be part of it. And you can check out our schedule for the next live roundtable as well. Anyway, though, let me introduce you first to our panel, and then we'll jump into today's topic. So looking at my screen, starting at the top, is our friend Tracy Reagan. Tracy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tracy, if you wouldn't mind taking a, a moment and giving people a little bit of your background. Sure. Um, so I have been in... DevOps for quite some time now. I uh, started my career sort of as a build management specialist. I really got into putting the puzzle together of how to create a binary, uh, which got me really into the nitty gritty of how applications are assembled. And it passed me into this world that we now call DevOps. I was doing, of course, lifecycle management at the point in time and software configuration management. And now we have grown into supply chain management. So as I say, SDM is the new SCM. <laughs> and I've done this kind of work for a very, very long time. And I love it. I love the, um, I love the challenge. Uh, Deploy Hub is a kind of a new uh, part of this puzzle that we call security and supply chain management and DevOps. We are uh, a microservice catalog that allows you to track the ownership of a service, its usage, uh, it's inventory, it's SBOM, it's CVEs, and roll that up to the logical application level. So we're looking out in the future and saying, how are we going to track SBOMs uh, in, in the future? And how do you even know what your application's consuming in a component-driven microservice architecture? So that's what we're up to. Excellent. And I should mention, right, Deploy Hub may be new to the security world and, and to the world of SBOMs, which is in and of itself kind of a new subject. But, you know, Tracy has been out here banging the open source drum for years now that I know her. And Deploy Hub is just a, a fantastic example of a really good technology with a lot of different applications of, of how you can use it and what you could use it for. And uh, security and, and software uh, bill of materials being one of them. So, Tracy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Next. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next, let me introduce you to Steve Hendrick. And, well, Steve's VP of Research over at the Linux Foundation. But beyond that, I'm going to let Steve tell you. Sure. 
Well, I'm relatively new to the Linux Foundation. Uh, just showed up last year, middle of last year. Um, but I was coming off 30 years as an industry analyst and uh, for big names like you know IDC, I ran all their app dev and deploy research. So research has been a, a sort of a, a cornerstone of my career as an analyst. And that's why I'm, I'm one of the, the two people running research over at the Linux Foundation now. And I think pertinent today's, to today's conversation is that uh, the first uh, core project that I started work on at the Linux Foundation was SBOMS, uh, trying to find out more about SBOM adoption. And so that research went into the field uh, around July, August of last year. And we now have a, a fully, you know, full analysis has been done and the report has been published back in, I think, January, early February, and that's on the Linux Foundation site. If you want to go grab it, just look for something called SBOM on the Linux Foundation. I'm sure you'll you'll find it. Anyway, so so that's why I'm here. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to think here because you're a pretty bright guy. I think you got a lot to contribute to the conversation. But Steve, welcome and thanks. Um, Next up, look, if we're going to talk about security, this is one of my favorite people to put to have on a panel, and it's my friend Caroline Wong. Caroline, you can tell them your, your background if you don't mind. I'm so happy to be here with this group today. I'm Caroline. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at Cobalt. We are a pen test as a service company. I started my DevSecOps career nearly 20 years ago, leading information security teams at eBay and Zynga. Very cool places to be working in cybersecurity. In both cases, we were running online operations 24 by 7 with millions of simultaneous users daily. eBay had an uptime requirement of 99.94% and as one of the first major e-commerce shops, enabled strangers to transact with each other over the internet. Zynga was growing incredibly rapidly as an early adopter of Amazon AWS. In 2009, the Zynga game Farmville launched, and in just a few weeks, the game went from zero to 10 million daily active users. A few weeks later, it rose to 80 million daily active users. At Cobalt, we build security software, we provide pen testing as a service, um, and I also teach courses on things like the OWASP Top 10. Uh, and I'm thrilled to report, actually, that the last two versions of the OWASP Top 10, 2017 and 2021, both talk about known vulnerable components. Uh, so it's something that I think is a very real part of cybersecurity these days. Absolutely. Caroline's being modest. She's also authored several books, the latest of which is sitting on my desk um, in, in my office, not here in the studio. She's an adjunct professor as well and has one of the most successful LinkedIn learning classes on uh, application security as well. But I don't mean to embarrass you too much, Caroline. Welcome and thanks for, for joining in. Last but not least is my... Uh, my co-host here on DevOps Unbound and my partner in business, Mitchell Ashley. Mitchell, go ahead. Hey, Alan. Hello, team. Hello, panel. A great group of people. It's great to see everybody back again and uh, have Stephen on as well. I'm Mitch Ashley. I'm CTO with TechStrong Group, working with Alan. And I also am uh, part of our analyst research firm, TechStrong Research. I'm principal there, focusing on application security, DevOps, cloud native, and uh, lots of good digital transformation activities. So 
Pleasure to be joining the panel, co-hosting with you, Alan. And uh, I know this is going to be a good one. I think so. All right. So let's jump into it, guys and gals. You know, the title for today, for this episode is The Software Supply Chain and S-Bombs for DevOps. You know, and that's a great title. It's very relevant and timely and, you know, uh, with, with what's going on in the world. But to me, this all boils down to why we can't have nice things, right? When you look at, you know, the very nature of how we've built applications from when I first got involved in technology just a few years ago um, to today is drastically changed, right? Today, our, our applications are not bespoke, right? They're not totally, I mean, it, it, I was in an ASP. I helped start an ASP in the dot-com days, 97, 98, 99. And back then, we had done a study and we said that any of these out-of-box applications were good for up to 80%. Of, you always needed to customize 20%, right? You, a real app, a big enterprise application. Well, application development today, about 80% of the components or the code that is in these applications are third-party code, right? They're not, they're not custom code that was written exclusively for, for that particular application. And in the world of microservices, man, that, that, that's blown through the window because now we could have, you know, for certain things, you could have a microservice that's servicing 100 or 1,000 different, theoretically, applications. And what a boon to developers. We can develop stuff. We could just throw stuff together, stitch it together. And, and get something out the door. You know, all's, all's good in the world. And now, you know, except for software supply chain issues and those components that you're using may be out of date, maybe they may have vulnerabilities, they may have design flaws. And how the heck am I supposed to stay up on it? Um, Stephen, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to kick us off here today. And maybe if you don't mind, do a better job than I have done of trying to give the history of, of what this whole software supply chain and SBOM stuff looks like. Yeah, okay. Well, there's a couple things to probably keep in mind that will help, help you understand the significance of what we're talking about today. I think the first thing is, is and this is right from the survey we did last summer and fall, 98% um, of organizations in that survey were using open source software in some capacity, okay? So, and, and, and that's, that's a number that's very similar to lots of other numbers because most people, when they do surveys, they ask questions about that. And, and so I'm, I'm just confirming what's already pretty much public knowledge. Um, so open source is out there. There's a ton of it out there. Um, and open source has this really interesting characteristic in that um, many of the components, some of the, many of the larger components probably, you know, have a whole stable of maintainers and committers. But as you, you know, there's a long tail on this sort of open source componentry that people use. And in the long tail, you might have a lot of components, some that are pretty interesting to people that really have one or two people associated with them or maintaining them. So, um, so 
open source and microservices, software componentry is sort of here to stay. Those are the building blocks by which we put stuff together, just like Alan said. Um, when it comes to the notion of an SBOM, um, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. So the idea of SBOMs has really been in the work for the last like, five, 10 years. Um, and it started out as a way to deal with addressing license compliance but it pivoted a number of years ago as a consequence of security becoming more and more and more important. Um, and so now when we think about SBOMs, we largely think about security. How do we, how do we address security concerns and, and what kind of dimensionality is that in an SBOM to help, to help address all of that? So that's, that's part of what we're here to talk about today. And I think it's become really important because last year in May 18th, we had the uh, executive order from, from Biden on security. And that certainly, that was something we checked out in the survey and pretty much everybody had heard about it and pretty much everybody was saying they're gonna do something as a consequence of, of what that represents. And SBOM was a very big part of that. So anyway, so there's, there's a little bit of history on SBOMs. Um, it's very relevant to how we develop applications today and a little bit about why it's so important. Got it. So, Tracy, it, it, is, is SBOMs a uniquely software, or open source software issue? Or you think we've got this issue anyway, whether we were using open source or not? Open source makes it better, worse? So, first of all, I want to um, do a shout out for the Linux Foundation. They did that, they, the document they, they published at the beginning of the year um, on SBOMs is really well uh, written. Um, there's a lot of research. If you want to learn more about it, it's a really good place to go. And Steve, what is the title of it? It's the it's like SBOM. I I'm gonna to have to I'll look while you while you're talking because okay. you know, I, I was the one who wrote it. I um, I don't remember the title I put on it. <laughs> it's really well done and it's pretty fascinating. It's got a, a lot of good information in it. Um on the topic of SBOMs, though, you know, in the build space. In the build space, we've been creating bomb reports for quite some time. They've recently been called SBOMs, but we still call them bomb reports if you were in the build space. And in the financial areas, uh, they wanted bomb reports for one very precise reason. And that is so you could compare two bomb reports and get a difference report. Because when you would push code out to production environments anywhere in the um, highly regulated, highly audited uh, industries like insurance and finance, you want to be able to show what the difference is between two releases. And the best way to do that is with a bill of material report. And so the, the output of your build should have generated a bill of material report, including any transit dependencies that you may know of. Now, when bomb reports first started, we're talking about back in, you know, when we were all writing make files, we didn't really have a lot of transit dependencies. We didn't have to have scanners because we didn't consume as many open source objects as we do now. Um, so yes, open source is one of the primary drivers, I believe, of looking into improving the security around binaries now, because we need to understand the origin of those objects. We need to understand the vulnerabilities um, and we need to be able to include them in the now SBOMs that we're creating that shows what's inside a binary. Uh, I believe that as we walk down this path of security, the concept of SBOMs will grow. We'll start adding more information in it. 
and we'll start tracking it a little different. The, um, the Ortelius Project, which is part of the Linux Foundation, um, they're, the, they're a great team of visionaries, I would have to say. They're thinking about ways to use blockchain to create um, a whole stream of basically SBOM data that's obviously immutable because we'd be using blockchain. But there's more than just what went into the, the, the object. It has a lot more implications. And I'm sure as Carolyn will tell us when we talk about uh, pen testing, there's other things that impact security other than just the source code. Uh, parameters that we're setting at the at the cluster level or at the namespace level or at the server level, uh, zero trust policies. How do we start implementing zero trust? Everything will depend on what is in that SBOM and it will be the central focus of gathering that information, understanding it and moving forward. Caroline, sounds like a setup for you here. <laughs> So I also have a very happy dog who is really interested in S-bombs. So if you hear him barking, he's just expressing his passion for the subject. Okay. Um, so I, at first, I, would, I just want to acknowledge that the term S-bombs sounds so scary. You know, and if folks don't know what S-bombs stands for, I think it can sound really intimidating. I think it can sound like something super important and super complex. Um, and the, the way that I think about it is simply that we're cooking in the kitchen, we're making a recipe, and we should probably have a list of our ingredients, you know, because who knows, uh, the folks that we're serving our food to, they might have a gluten allergy. And if that's the case, we just want to know what's going into our soup. Um, and, and certainly this is, uh, you know, also related to risk management, which is to say that, you know, security is actually an emergent property. And if you don't know all the ingredients that are going into your soup, there's no way that you could possibly know about security as an emergent property. I've certainly seen uh, perspectives on this topic change over the past couple of decades. You know, uh, 15 years ago, uh, security people used to tell the story about how to think about security and about how to decide how much to invest in information security efforts. And the story would go like this. And just for fun, I'm going to pick on Mitch. So security practitioners used to have the story. And the story says that if Mitch and I are running away from a bear, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to. I just have to run faster than Mitch because it's, it, because then the bear's just going to eat Mitch, and I'm going to get away, and it's going to be fine. And this is how we used to think about cybersecurity in almost this sort of like comparative and competitive sense. And naturally, uh, the underlying assumption in the scenarios that I, I value myself, I don't care about Mitch. My success does not depend on Mitch. So as long as I get away from the bear, I don't care what happens. But of course, the problem with this analogy, and there are so many problems with this analogy, is that in reality, software companies and the digital value created by different organizations and by different individuals, it doesn't exist in silos. We are not independent islands. And so I actually think that the more appropriate analogy for how things work in modern software development and therefore in cybersecurity is that we're in a three-legged race. In a three-legged race, we have to depend upon each other. If we're going to win this race, we have to work together in lockstep. And so that's how I really think it is today when it comes to software and when it comes to security. And so every software company, you know, the, the statistics that Steve was sharing with us, 
every software company, including ours, is part of this tightly interwoven ecosystem of software companies and, and open source, you know, components that provide a variety of products and services. And each of these uses other software companies to get their work done and so on. So it's just this tightly interconnected web. And if we're going to make software well, and if we're going to secure it well, then we have to understand what that web looks like. Well, I feel like I have to defend my bear evasion skills now. Thank you. But <laughs> clearly you would outrun me. So I think we know the answer to that. Um, I was just going to add that, you, you know, it's interesting. The analogy I like to use is like when you buy a piece of furniture from Ikea, turn open to the third page and list all the stuff that should be in the package of what you need to assemble this wardrobe or desk, this desk or whatever you're building. And that's what a bill of materials is in manufacturing. Same thing for software. In our context, though, I think we're talking about software bill of materials in the context of a software supply chain, because I need to know where all those materials come from. What are parts are mine? What parts are from open source? Which projects? How do they get updated? How, how do they get into my manufacturing, my software creation process? And to uh, kind of talking about vulnerabilities and, and things like that is that's this complex interweb ecosystem of interdependencies between our software, third-party software, open source services that we use, APIs that we use. All those are part of our software bill of material, our bill of materials in total. And when you think about it that way, that's where the complexity comes in and why it's so important. If you want to figure out where our problem is, let's first question is, well, what do we have? And that's why you need a software bill of materials. So I, I, I'll agree with Caroline, though. I think SBOM, look, it, it's a great acronym, but it is a scary term. When you talk to people who are in insecurity, you say, I'm worried about SBOMs. They think you're like you're talking about the U about Ukraine or something, right? I mean, it's SBOMs. And, and then you say, no, no, it's software builder materials. So maybe we, we can come up with something else that explains that. But, you know, Caroline, in my view, world and history of security it wasn't even outrunning the guy next to me it was the zebra the zebra herd mentality where you know i'm in a herd full of zebras and the lion's going to get someone but not today not my day today it's someone else it's another zebra's turn to get it today and my day's coming but not today um so th there was and that's a crappy mentality and attitude towards your security, I, I agree with you. Now, when I look at SBOMs though, in terms of pen testing, think about, I mean, that would make your life easier, wouldn't it, Caroline? And, I mean, if I had an SBOM and now I, it's almost like, you know, I think back to when Mitchell and I did NAC a long time ago. And back then you could either do vulnerability scanning on, on a device and it'll tell you, well, what what ports I found open and what settings I found through scanning. Or with NAC, we got away from that and actually just logged on to the computer and looked in the registry file at what the settings were. And sometimes we didn't dependently verify it, most times not. Um, and it made it really easy because then we could check these computers in milliseconds and allow them on or the network or quarantine them. Same kind of thing with SBOMs. Think about doing a pen test, you know, against an SBOM list and say, okay, yeah, checks out good. Wait a second, this isn't on that material list. Yep, 
it definitely helps, right? So the reason pen testing is effective is because the way that cyber attacks and breaches happen is that the software that we use is vulnerable and bad actors exploit those vulnerabilities. So in pen testing, you've got folks who are finding these vulnerabilities so that they can be addressed before they are exploited. And there are two common challenges in pen testing. One of them is scoping and another one is discovery. And having an actual strong SBOM absolutely helps to save time because then you have this precious time of a very skilled pen tester who's looking for vulnerabilities in your software. And if you can give that person a map, it saves them time and they can spend their time looking for problems and not just trying to figure out how big is this map in the first place. Yeah, I agreed. Tracy, I'm wondering though, you mentioned how microservices can be a real, uh, I don't want to say a complicator, but complexity is part of our life, right? So microservices can make this a little bit more complex. Why don't we dig a little deeper on that? Well, they're a disruption um, in the way we write software. Um, right now, when we talk about SBOMs and transitive dependencies and being able to produce that discovery, uh, we're really talking about a single binary. And if we think about how we do SBOMs in a microservices environment, when you do your build, that's when the SBOMs created. Um, in a monolith, you, do your, you run your build, you run your scans, you create your SBOM, and it's done for the application. In a microservices world, we still have a pipeline, we still have a build, but that build is creating an image file for a function. Now, how do we know who's consuming that function? And if you want to produce a SBOM at the logical application level, how do you go about doing that? Uh, do you keep track, keep track of it in Excel spreadsheet? <laughs> how do you start managing that? Uh, and that is where the complexity, uh, and this is the case with microservices in general, is that we don't have a really good way of tracking their usage and where they're at. And we have this data. We have, you know, as I've kind of matured in this lifecycle management practice, I've always recognized that we've had so much data that we generate from our Jenkins pipeline, our CircleCI pipeline, and we don't do anything with it. It just sits out there in logs. So now as we do that in a microservice world, we need to do something with that data to start understanding where these, where the origins of these objects are, where things are coming from, who's using them, how they're related, and all of the relationships that they begin to track. Once we begin thinking in a different way, um, we have to still have a build that shows the full application. We, we as consumers don't call up and say, hey, I just tried to order this really cool t-shirt and the cart service doesn't work. It won't add to the cart service. So your cart service microservice is broken. We don't say that. We just call and open a ticket. So then how do we start tracking those pieces down? It really goes back to, do we have an application level SBOM now we need it to understand not just that we're consuming it, but who is the owner of it and how, where it was created and how do we get it fixed? And what's inside of that? What's the SBOM for that microservice? What's the vulnerabilities for that microservice? And we need that information fast and in one place. We don't want to go track it down through the, go start hunting down all of our logs through our pipeline. 
So we have to really, everything is shifting. We are going through a really big shift when it comes to IT. Uh, it's kind of fun. And I keep saying it, it's like, a, it's like a tsunami. We have microservices coming at the same time as we have this whole new discussion around security. Uh, and to be honest, I've been in software for a long time, so I feel like I'm allowed to say this. We've been sloppy when it comes to security over the years. As developers, we just, we're just sloppy. I still see... Uh, packages, Java packages being created with mm. with with global with a star dot star. You pull a star dot star. I I can put anything in that directory, and you're going to suck it up into your package. Now you're going to deploy it out to all your environment. And no matter what we do, no matter how good we're doing things, we'll never know that object's in there because if we nobody ever told us it was in there, and we didn't know it was in the directory. So we have to be smarter. We have to figure out ways to track what we do in a much cleaner way. Uh, and we have to think about doing that now, not just for a monolith, but we have to do it now for lots of microservices and now start tracking what a logical application looks like. So we've got some work to do in this space. We really do. Uh, and we can't be sloppy anymore. Yeah. Guys, anybody, any comments or else I'm going to go, Caroline? So... I couldn't agree more with Tracy. Yes, there is complexity, but it can totally be managed. There are other industries that do this properly. The airline industry, there are more than 5,000 airlines internationally. Every single day, more than 100,000 people fly on a plane. These people come from all over the place. They have all sorts of different attributes that you've got to keep track of right? What's their origin country? What's their birthday? What's their, you know, identification? And this works. For the most part, air travel works. For the most part, despite delays and mechanical errors and, you know, all the different problems that happen with air travel, it works. And the reason it works is because people have agreed to standards and people enforce those standards. In software, we kind of just don't care enough. We kind of just think like what's super important is getting the feature. What's super important is making this thing work. What's super important is meeting the deadline. And we actually just don't prioritize things like making a list of the ingredients that are going into your soup. You know, we, we kind of just don't prioritize things like backing up your data and making sure the backups work because those things are not the funnest things to do, and they're not the sexiest things to do. But, but you know, we go to an airport and there are a hundred not very fun and not very sexy things that each of us do. We take off our shoes and we open up our bags and we put our laptops on the thing and, you know, we, all these different things, but we do it because we've agreed that it's important. And as an industry, as a software development industry, we just kind of haven't gotten there yet. We kind of just don't think it's that important yet. And I'm, I, I, I think we'll get there. I think we're going in that direction, but we're not quite there yet. I think one of the things that it, this also helps us with Caroline is once it's visible to you, what's going into our software and, and to your point, Tracy, it's kind of that laziness It's like, Oh yeah. Do we need that library? I don't know. Just throw them all in. Cause we might need them. Right. When you see it, put together and you're trying to manage the complexity of it or the security of it, the vulnerabilities of what you're creating, whether it's over provisioning containers or libraries that you're using open source components, 
you know, it lets you see, okay, what do we really need? What are we really building our software on? Do we need all that stuff in there? It's kind of like, do you want your iPhone to sit there and update all day because you've got 5,000 apps? Or do you want the you know, 80 or so that you might use or whatever the number is? You know, it lets you manage what you're creating and it makes it visible what it is. Because if it's not visible, you don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to manage it better. Let me uh, let me let me add a few things here. Um, I mean, so far in the in the conversation we've been having, it, it's been sounding almost like we're at you know we're at day one of trying to deal with us bombs, and and we really aren't. We're really pretty far along. Um, so let me just give you a view into what that looks like. Um, first of all, uh, if you're going to have an SBOM, you need to have some way to capture the information. And we already have several formats out there in the industry that will allow us to do that. And, I, you know, each one has its specific, uh, you know, pluses and each one has its specific minuses. Um, and realistically, the industry has not made any decisions about which one is preferred. Uh, the reality is, is they all have something to offer. It's early days in, the, in sort of the standards war space. And as a consequence, you know, all these formats have something to provide um, and have each one has a following. Um, and that's the kind of the, that's where it's all been starting. And that's good because you got to have some way to be able to uh, have a machine producible and machine readable way to deal with these things because you got to be able to deal with this in an automated way has to be done largely in real time and you got to be able to do it at scale. Um, so you need to have a format. So we, we've, we've largely solved that problem. There are some sticking points there, but we've largely solved that problem today. You also need tools because one of the biggest concern here is how to automate the production of SBOMs. And you can't do these things manually because, you know, if you want to go back just to your direct dependencies, that's not too hard to do. But if you want to go further down the chain, looking at your indirect dependencies for whatever your component is, it can get pretty messy and pretty complicated fast. So, uh, so tooling to be able to help you understand, you know, the sort of tree of dependencies is really important. Um, and realistically, you know, although I haven't put together, even tried to put together a list of vendors in the space, um, and I haven't really gotten a good answer from any of the big analyst firms on whether they're tracking a market for SBOMs as of yet. Um, the reality is there are tools out there. The Linux Foundation has some that are free to help you produce SBOMs. I'm sure that the software composition analysis vendors uh, who have been, were very early on into the whole issue of doing license compliance and then vulnerabilities when it came to looking at components and largely open source components. Um, I mean, this, this, is not, this is not a new market for SCA tools. It's been around for a while. And these guys are, it's, you know, this whole notion of SBOMs is no stranger to them. And they're looking at it very closely. And I would expect the SCA vendors to be some of the earlier ones from the standpoint of, of building sort of SBOM purpose, you know, uh, SBOM-centric tooling, uh, either to provide as a service or be able to sell to, to, um, uh, to end users to be able to produce SBOMs and then eventually consume SBOMs because just like the production of SBOMs, if you've got a portfolio of componentry and products out there, I mean, you want to scan the whole thing. You want to understand exactly where your vulnerabilities are, uh, help you make good, you know, risk management decisions. Um, and you know, figure out how you want to how you want to do resourcing to uh, to make things better. So anyway, um, I think that's kind of a, in a nutshell some of the most important things I see about how SBOMs are developing. In the survey that we did, 
um, we in fact did see that about 47% of organizations um, have are, are involved in SBOMs. And I will say that there's a good portion of those that kind of have dipped their toes in the water, um, but there's a surprising amount, um, about 20% of the, of the end users that we talked to, uh, was largely end users, there were some vendors in there, but largely end users, um, were you know really fully engaged in dealing with SBOMs. And one of the reasons for that is because in some of the industries like um, medical devices, uh, healthcare, um, transportation, especially you know uh, automotive manufacturing, if software doesn't work properly, then lives are at stake. And those particular industries have taken this whole issue of SBOMs very seriously. Uh, because they recognize the, 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 the significant importance of being able to do it. This is, uh, you know, lives, lives matter, you know, and this stuff and, and, and SBOMs are going to have a, uh, a very big role in helping ensure that, um, you know, we don't have problems with software, you know, that is in life critical situations. So anyway, I think many of the other industries are kind of looking to what's going on, the evolution of SBOMs and, in healthcare and in, um, in automotive and saying, okay, we can learn from this and we can use this as a model in our industry. So anyway, that's, um, that's a little bit about the fact that, you know, actually things are going fairly well in the SBOM space for having it be a quote unquote market that even I didn't even hear about when I was, uh, when I was an industry analyst. So it's, uh, it's been kind of a well-kept secret, but it's getting a lot of, a lot of visibility now. And I guess one last point is, is we did some, uh, some projections on how growth would occur in the SBOM space from the standpoint of end user enterprises and vendors using SBOMs, uh, either producing or consuming them. And 2022 is going to be most likely the year of the SBOM. Um, we're gonna see about 66% growth in 2022. And our penetration is going to go from about 45% now to up to about mid-70s. And then next year, it's going to trail off because growth was so high this year. But even with 13% growth in 2023, overall penetration will go from mid-70s to mid-80s. So, uh, so this is um, a market that pretty much everybody has their eyes on because it's such an important aspect of, of how we have to build and, and manage our software these days. I, I would, you know, uh, Caroline's point about the cultural shift that we all have to agree that it's important to do will help um, help this problem. You know, years ago, I went to um, a conference in Washington, D.C., and it was about um, software. It was about configuration management. That was just the term. And. I met several vendors, software vendors uh, to the government who tracked things like nuclear subs. And they would be able to tell you with their system, if this bolt broke, what the impact could be and who you needed to notify to have a new one sent to you. <laughs> All, and we were talking millions and millions of parts that they had tracked that kind of data on. And what I find today is that even though, you know, we might use SPDX, or we might use Cyclone um, to, to create these S-bombs, the access to the information still is scary. 
the word scary, but if you look at an S-bomb, it looks pretty scary too. <laughs> so I think that as we um, mature in managing S-bombs and, and everybody agrees that they start have to, they need to generate them at some point in the process, we still have to think about access to them and doing something with the data because the data in those S-bombs is, is pretty darn critical, uh, especially when you are trying to sort out who is using Log4j, right? Think about how many millions of people, how many millions of applications had to be recompiled when that new version of Log4j um, came out. In the future, we may just have to do a new um, release of the Log4j microservice, but we still need to know who's using them, that, those, those objects. And the data is in the, in the SBOMs, but the SBOMs, my complaint about them is that it's, the data still is hard to access. And we generate it, it stays under the covers of our Jenkins pipeline, maybe in our in our on our build directory. But we have to do something with that data. And that's the next evolution, I think, in SBOM tooling is what do you do once that, that, that data is has been generated? Why is it important and how do I use it? And how do we integrate it into multiple tools so that that, that data is is like the foundational elements of how we create software? I agree. It, it can't be a manual process. Like let's assemble the you know, build materials of what we just created because you know, that software is ever changing small parts all the time, interchangeably anywhere in the stack, whether it's infrastructure code or application frameworks, you know, like uh, uh, it, it, any piece of it could change, be changing in any moment. So it's also a not just what is it now, but what what has it been? Because we may be tracing, tracking down things that happened an hour, a day, a week ago also. And that SBOM has changed since then. Yeah, yeah. And it's, in some ways, the crux around all of this is going to be um, uh, dealing with sort of how, how vulnerabilities evolve. And of course, what happens is on a random basis, vulnerabilities keep, are, 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 you know, keep being found in all different kinds of components. Uh, that will never stop, that will never change. There will always, will always be finding new vulnerabilities. The issue is, is from the standpoint of being able to understand SBOMs, understand the links that SBOMs can provide to known vulnerabilities, being able to have, for instance, like the National Vulnerability Database. Um, what, what's really needed is there, there needs to be tooling that helps you really automate the consumption of SBOM information. So the tooling you know, can become aware of you know, what it is that you know, the portfolio of, of componentry that is in your, in your organization. Um, and therefore, as new vulnerabilities are found, there needs to be a way to be able to you know, get that information pushed back to this, these to this tool in real time. So it can then understand, tell you, you know, that we found new vulnerabilities, um, based on perhaps their CVSS score, which is you know how severe they are from a vulnerability standpoint, you know make recommendations uh, from the perspective of okay, as an you know based on what your policy is around risk management, make some recommendations on what it is that we ought to do now if these vulnerabilities have been found. So there's you know we're we're in the early days of having a really good way to consume this kind of information, but I don't think it's going to take that long. Agreed. You know, my, my only thought is, and we, and we got to wrap up soon, guys, but, <clears throat> you know, it's, look, had, had President Biden not, or, or the White House not shown a light on this, 
in their cybersecurity report. I doubt we're talking about it right now. And now, from what I, my understanding is, the federal government saying all software used in the Fed space needs to have SBOMs, which is a big stick, right? That's a big stick to get compliance. Is it enough? Is it a big enough stick? Will it work, you know, for software that's not used in, in, fed in the federal space, foreign countries? Do we see the EU adopting a similar kind of uh, posture? And, and to me, because, you know, so much in security doesn't happen because we want it to be and because we're nice people, right? Sometimes it does. It takes that stick. And I, I don't know. I don't know if, if just the White House alone here is a big enough stick for it. Oh, we just mean, need to make it sexy. <laughs> As bombs are not sexy. Yeah. They're not. We have to make them sexy. We have to make them interesting, right? I mean, I've 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 found fascination in them from my early part of my career, and I never understood why I couldn't get in an S bomb conversation with another developer. <laughs> but we need to make them sexy. We need to, uh, you know, as Caroline pointed out, they need to be fun, and there is some really good data in that, and it really has the ability to say, if we had that national you know, library of open source objects. Uh, we could have notified every single individual who was using Log4j at the, at the exact time that, that that problem occurred. So it can be, it can be sexy. We just have to, that's our, that's our task for yeah. SPOM lovers is to All right, make so it hashtag sexy. SPOMs are sexy. <laughs> you got uh, it. <laughs> we should make up little buttons like that for RSA conferences here. Hashtag SBOMs are, are sexy. sexy. I think they make those for yeah, your Someone crocs. will say you it's sexy, but whatever. <laughs> um, all right, we're, we're devolving. I, I need to end this show at this point. Um, Caroline, thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming on. Steve, thanks so much for adding so much here. It's great research as well. By the way, the report was the state of software bill of... Uh, materials, SBOM, and cybersecurity readiness research. Right. And you can get it over at Linux Foundation. Read it. Read it. It's well worth it. Tracy, always a pleasure to have you on and great to catch up about the latest from Deploy Hub as well. Of course, Caroline's with Cobalt. That's cobalt.io. Mitchell, any last words and take us home? SBOM. I think it's an eight. You can dance to it. People are doing it. So join the fun. All right. Hey, again, thanks to Tricentis for sponsoring DevOps Unbound. We couldn't do this without them. Until next time, keep an eye on your S-bombs. And uh, this is Alan Schimmel. We're out.